I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I talk with journalist and activist Asha Daya. Isn't that nice? Asha Daya is a passionate activist for topics like feminism and body image, religion, politics, and gender equality. But it was the topic of her TED Talk that really caught my attention. Her talk was around the idea of reframing the debate around reproductive rights, going beyond pro-life and pro-choice. And I had so many questions. Because this issue for me, any position that diminishes my autonomy is a non-starter. So again, I had so many questions, and that's where we start our conversation. What is the path to middle ground between pro-life and pro-choice? What am I missing? It sounds so ridiculous, even when I hear it back, like, but what do you mean? What else is there apart from pro-life and pro-choice? And that's kind of a conversation I really wanted to start. And well, I actually, I can't take credit for starting. I, it's a conversation I really want to examine and expand on and see what else is there. Because when we look at reproductive justice and healthcare and abortion in the United States, it's like something's got to give. You know, as someone who's strongly in the pro-choice camp, right, it's really hard for me to find any middle ground with anyone or any group that I think wants to take away my bodily autonomy. So what am I missing? What's the middle ground that I'm not seeing? Yeah, that's a very, very valid point. And um, I think people would mostly consider me in the pro-choice camp as well. And I totally agree with the, the idea of not kind of giving any ground to those who want to take away the rights of my and your bodily autonomy to find a way to, you know, help babies thrive. I think where the common ground is on issues like, okay, when you look at birth control, for example, if say if someone out there who considers themselves pro-life, they cannot wrap their head around abortion no matter what. Okay, well, let's look at birth control because studies over years and years and years have shown that birth control is, in fact, the most effective way to A, reduce the rate of unintended pregnancy and therefore reduce um, the rate of uh, abortion in many cases. So, can we find common ground on that? Like, can a pro-life person and a pro-choice person go, hey, we may disagree on abortion, but we agree on birth control. Let's lobby for this together. Let's let's get together outside our Capitol building and lobby our state or local legislators and be like, hey, you need to make sure birth control is available over the counter, for instance, something like that. So, I think there are ways to find common ground that don't have to necessarily mean you give up your core values. And I, I find that on both sides. And it, it is a tough thing to stomach because it, it requires deep thinking, deep conversations, a lot of heart. And unfortunately, we're in an environment where these quick clickbait slogans and, you know, these quippy sort of statements that especially political candidates make on TV, they're the ones that are the big selling points, right? So, to find common ground, it takes a lot more than just a two-minute news segment. I think it takes these one-on-one, really deep and meaningful conversations. Right. You know, you come from an evangelical background, and I, I do you refer to yourself as an ex-evangelical? Or yeah, I do. And there's a there's a movement of uh, like-minded people called the ex-evangelicals, and we're definitely growing in number. I think there's a lot more of us than even what people think and what recent studies show, because the millennial generation of ex-evangelicals we kind of all grew up with the same kind of ideologies and values and lessons and books and CDs and 
worship music, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so, yeah, I definitely would consider myself an ex-evangelical, but I, I'm still spiritual somewhat. I, I just don't know exactly where I would fit in or I don't have like a definitive answer to all those big spiritual questions, which again is like I was taught to have like have a have an answer for everything and have an answer for why you believe what you believe and who you believe in and it must be very clear cut and black and white, but I'm like, you know, Life just isn't like that. And so I'm happy kind of being in this ambiguous area. But yeah, that's <laughs> that's a very long answer to your question. Yes, I'm an ex-evangelical. <laughs> no, because we kind of talked about this a bit over email offline about the fact yeah. that, that I come from a religious background, but it's a little bit different in that I grew up in the South. And in the South, everyone's forced to go to church, right? right. It doesn't matter what you believe. So, you know, as soon as I became an adult and went off to college, I, I, you know, didn't go to church any longer. And that's quite different from making the choice to be a part of that community, right? Do you know mm. what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Were you evangelical or were you Catholic? Well, what was your affiliation? Baptist, Baptist. So, you know, of course, abortion is considered bad. It's something that should be shameful. And, you know, even when I was really young, I could see the hypocrisy and some of the things that were being taught in comparison to the behavior of some of the people who were teaching those things. And so I was never, it wasn't a hard choice for me to leave those ideas behind, right? Which is different from yeah. someone who goes into adulthood beyond college and, you know, gets married and still kind of in that community. It's a very different transition. So I'm, I'm really curious about how that transition happened to you and what came after that. If you want to talk about that, you can. Yeah, absolutely. Well, just quickly, I will say, I don't know if you know, but the Southern Baptist convention when Roe versus Wade was decided, they released a statement basically saying that they agree with the ruling because they don't want to see women resorting to back alley abortions, which I thought was really interesting. But obviously, that isn't talked about as much nowadays. But um, so my, I guess, deconstruction and, and leaving the evangelical movement happened for a couple of reasons. I grew up in Australia where the political and religious environment were completely separate. There was no sort of sense of hearing about politics from the pulpit. I had no interest in politics. My parents weren't and still aren't very political. It's changing a little bit now, which I find sad, um, but maybe that's the global influence of Trump and you know the American evangelical movement. But when I moved to the US in 2008, one of the things that we grew up believing was that you know no matter where you are in the world, you can always find your church family, always find your, your evangelical brothers and sisters. So one of the first things I did was I need to find a church. So unbeknownst to me, I found a church through a, a Christian family friend who was part of a very large conservative evangelical church here in Los Angeles, which, you know, they do exist despite being a very liberal city. And so I quickly became indoctrinated and introduced to the American religious right without even knowing what on earth it was. And this was in 2008. And around that time in California, there was a big uproar over Prop 8 where they didn't want gay marriage legalized. And so I remember our church handing out flyers about certain legislation. And I'm just like, well, this, I've never heard of this before, but I guess it's normal. And I just kind of started adopting their beliefs and values, the political re religious beliefs and didn't even think twice. And I think in a deep-seated way, that's what the evangelical movement does well. It teaches you that you don't really need to question and ponder any deeper, you know, these bigger issues that we're talking about. We're giving you all the information you need from the pulpit, from your midweek Bible study. That's all you need. 
but aside from that, I I got married when I was 24 because getting married is about getting married young is a very common thing there because of the whole purity culture, no sex before marriage thing. P.S. Everyone's having sex before marriage, <laughs> of course, uh, including myself. Um, but my marriage ended up becoming fairly abusive, and so I decided that I was going to leave that marriage, which in itself is. A bit was a really, really big deal because, quote unquote, God hates divorce and I was shunned and no one was supporting me in that decision except my parents, thank God. And so I ended up leaving that church. My husband actually worked at the church. It was a very big church and they had a lot of people on staff. He worked there. I decided to leave him and I stepped down from all the ministries that I was involved in, including the Friday night worship team. And so deciding to leave that marriage and the church subsequently allowed me to take a step back from everything that I kind of threw myself into four years earlier. So this is 2012 now. And moving to a different part of Los Angeles, I started associating with different friends and groups and I work in the television industry. And so I I think I started just becoming naturally exposed to different ways of looking at the world and issues and spirituality and politics and realizing that, oh, feminism isn't this evil thing that these awful women do because they hate men and children. I was like, you know what? I'm actually a feminist and I'm actually more closely aligned with these very progressive views than what I was taught in this conservative church. So I'm going to kind of explore this route and deconstruct what I was taught basically since birth and figure out who I am away from the influence of parents, church, conservative environment. And so I would still say I'm on that journey, but I've I definitely learned a lot about myself and it's been difficult, but I, I really like the place that I'm at now. But in a nutshell, that's kind of how I left the church and how I began to disassociate with the evangelical movement. You know, that sounds really, really freeing to me. I mean, did you did you have a sense of freedom, renewed freedom when you did that? Because I remember when I left home for college and I realized, you know, I had this realization, I woke up and like, hey, I don't have to go to church this Sunday. I just felt really, really free. Did, did you have that that feeling? Yeah, I think I've always secretly felt free when I didn't have to, quote unquote, go to church. Um, but the real, like the deep feeling of freedom has only been a very recent thing because unfortunately, with a lot of the values that were taught, whether it's about sexuality, about politics, with a lot of that comes a lot of shame. So even though I was confident in the decisions I was making, like, no, I'm not going to go to church. No, I don't believe this. And no, I'm okay. I'm not going to condemn myself for having sex before marriage and whatever else. I still felt a lot of that. And it wasn't until I started meeting other people in the evangelical community and hearing other like-minded people who'd been through similar stories of abusive marriages and abusive families. My family wasn't abusive, but I'm just saying those environments where you felt like you weren't able to be truly yourself It wasn't until I started hearing those personal stories that I felt, oh, okay, you know what? I'm not alone. And I think that just shows the power of personal stories and sharing that in a public setting to make other people feel less alone. So, but yeah, it is such a liberating feeling to know that I don't have to adhere to one single type of way of living or thinking to be right or to be good or to be valued in the world. Right. So one of the things that that you talk about that happened when you left the church was that women who were still in the church started to come to you privately to talk about their own abortions, right? Yeah. So I was really fascinated with the few women that initially came to me 
on social media, they would reach out to me. So after I left the church, I and my views started changing. Every now and then, I would you know share articles on social media, mostly Facebook, and share my opinions that had obviously changed since my conservative church days. And I did get some pushback publicly from people, but privately, especially when I started talking about abortion or birth control or reproductive rights, I had some friends from church, female friends tell me secretly, oh, I'm so glad you shared that article or or, thank you for saying that because my friend has had an abortion or I've had an abortion or I've had multiple abortions and I'm just too scared to tell anyone. And I'm like, in my mind, I'm thinking, thank you for trusting me with that and I appreciate you reaching out to me. I'm glad that I'm a person that you feel you can trust, but also let's dissect that a little bit. And so it, it kind of started me on the journey of why do they feel like they can tell me now that I'm no longer publicly out there as this conservative Christian? Why am I a safe space and their church that they're so deeply involved in is not? And so that kind of got me started thinking about and started becoming really angry about the state of reproductive rights and how we talk about abortion in America. So I think that one question that came to my mind when I heard that this was happening, this part of your story, and I think that every pro-choice woman probably wants to know this. So when they came to you and they started to talk about their experiences, why and how do they justify aligning themselves politically with these positions? You know, what were some of the ways that they were able to reconcile the position of the church, their political affiliations, and the fact that they were benefiting from having bodily autonomy? Yeah, that's a very good question. I don't think there's one standard answer for it, but there's a few different things that I've identified over the years speaking to these people. And a couple of the women I've spoken to from my former church have um, agreed to go on camera and share their story publicly. And I'm really thankful for that, that they want to be part of this conversation. So, the first thing I would say is a lot of them don't actually know what the Republican Party vote for on a daily basis. They don't actually know that, you know, for instance, there are many of them who are on services like Medicaid or Medicare. They don't know that the Republican Party are trying to defund Medicare. They think Obama was trying to do that and they don't understand that the ACA was actually trying to expand Medicaid and Medicare access. So things like that where they don't fully understand the intricacies of it give you an idea on a larger scale how much lack of nuance and deep discussions there are about how politics plays into your everyday values, you know. So, that was a big thing for me. The second thing that I want to say is they're more ashamed of people publicly knowing that they had sex outside of marriage by seeing a visibly pregnant belly than they are about getting an abortion and quote-unquote, you know, covering up their quote-unquote mistake, which is the way one friend put it to me. When she became pregnant and she shared her story publicly with me and on my blog, she told me, It was a one-night stand, first of all. She did get an STD, and her first thought was, I'm going to go to Planned Parenthood and get an abortion and just start all over again. God's going to forgive me, and I'm going to get on with it. And it's like, huh, so you know you're already, you know, living in the assumption that you are forgiven, you know, and that you're able to justify what you did, but yet you want to protest the right of other women to have the same access to you. And one of the women who has shared her story publicly, that the one who had a one-night stand and got an STD, she said to me, you know, she still calls herself a pro-life Christian. Um, she's not very involved politically and doesn't, you know, look at stories every day and all of that. She once told me Obama was bad when I asked her why she couldn't answer, you know, that kind of thing. 
she was like, you know, I I totally used to judge before very quickly about people who would get abortions. And now I realize you don't know anybody's story. So like just that little bit of ground she was able to understand just going through it herself was like, that's an opening right there. You know, that's someone who I can see would be like, I still identify as pro-life and I'm able to find common ground in perhaps sex education or contraception access, things like that. So, yeah, there, there are a number of different aspects that allow them to justify it, you know, and frankly, there are some that just don't, you know, that they'll say like, oh, I had two or three abortions and I fully regret it. And so, I'm now trying to overturn abortion access for everyone. And wh- one of those people is, uh, I don't know if you know of Abby Johnson, the woman who that movie Unplanned was based on. And she, you know, talks about how she used to work at a Planned Parenthood in Texas and then she had two abortions herself and uh, she saw an abortion being performed and she had a change of heart and all of a sudden she joined the protesters outside the clinic and now she tries to lure clinic workers away from their jobs and tries to give them other opportunities. So there's, you know, there's a whole gamut of reasons why pro-life, Christian, Republican, Catholic women will also choose abortion on the same rate as as anyone else. So it's it's a matter of like having those one-on-one conversations and getting to the heart of like, Okay, there's there's obviously something more going on here than just people who are having an abortions and people who are not. So yeah, it's interesting. Well, wow, no, that is really interesting. And I guess the the last woman you mentioned, I guess it's kind of like a redemptive act for her, right? To absolve herself from guilt from her yeah. own abortions, which is really, really, you know, yeah, I just find that really interesting. And the other woman you mentioned where someone's had an abortion and then they ask for forgiveness and then they just go on about their lives and they go back to church and they never have another mm-hmm. one night stand. I mean, probably they will have another one night stand. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, I mean, I wonder in their minds and you don't have to answer this, but I just wonder in their minds what they think distinguishes them and their abortion from the women that they're trying to keep from getting abortions. Do they think that like they're good because they've asked for forgiveness and the other women mm-hmm. are terrible because they don't think to ask for your forgiveness like I just don't understand how that works yeah I would love to know the answer to that too I I guess there would be a gamut of answers I'm sure yeah I I think another thing that I think is interesting about your activism and your approach to activism and your TED talk is that you're not hostile right And, and you want to your approach is to find common ground you know which is not only compassionate but it's it's kind of smart and I have to admit when I hear these positions and I think about my choices and my reproductive rights being diminished it kind mm. of makes me angry right it makes me really angry so I'm just curious like you know how do you how do you do that how do you do that without the hostility well thank you for saying that because I <laughs> I feel like I'm getting more and more angry <laughs> as every day passes. And the TED talk, that the TEDx talk that I did was done in October 2018. And it just feels like since then, I mean, it, look, it was still bad since Trump took office. The first day he was in office, he signed the global gag rule. But I feel like just lately, the last couple of months in 2019, we've just seen even more regression on abortion, safe and legal abortion access. And so, it, it is hard for me to stay, I'm definitely not neutral. It's hard for me to stay calm all the time and not immediately like get angry. But I have to remember that, you know, I don't know who's reading what I'm tweeting or listening to what I'm saying. So I want to be able to, you know, not just be a source of anger. I want to channel that anger in a way that could be useful. There are always going to be people that disagree, hate me, whatever. And that's, I'm not talking to them. 
I'm talking to the people that are interested in hearing information. So for me, it's like, how do I combat the anger and the hostility that is rising within me? And for me, it's like being informed, constantly reading stories and articles and looking at the data and informing my my opinions around that and starting conversations around that. And often it is calling out hypocrisy where it is warranted. Like just recently we've seen, you know, the way that migrant kids at the border are being treated, the way that a lot of these migrant youths are dying in American custody. It's like, well, that needs to be called out as hypocrisy because why isn't the pro-life lobbying for that? What about the women in ICE custody who are having miscarriages? Like that's a life. That, you know, they have a heartbeat, their fetus had a heartbeat, and maybe they wanted to bring that pregnancy to term. Why aren't they being advocated for in the same breath as, you know, the the pregnancies in the United States? And so, for me, it's just a matter of situation by situation, being informed and, you know, figuring out what the best way forward is. And as a side note, one of the best pieces of advice that I had read, I did an interview with a woman named Gloria Felt, and she used to be the CEO of Planned Parenthood Federation of America before Cecile Richards. And one of the things that she had talked about, she now runs a company called Take the Lead, where she talks about women and leadership and leadership positions. One of her things was, you know, it's it's past time for us to stop fighting back. It's time to fight forward. You know, how are we going forward? How are we going to move this issue forward with our values, with our ideas and with our passion? And I really love that idea. So, that's kind of something that I'm trying to implement into the advocacy work that I do, the information that I share and and and, you know, things like a TED Talk and the docu-series that I'm doing. So, yeah, I'm hoping I could be a, a fighting forward person as opposed to just fighting back. Yeah, I like that idea, fighting forward. <laughs> you know, you you read my mind because I was going to ask you about the migrant children next, right? Because when I think mm-hmm. about one of the things that does make me angry is the hypocrisy around that. And some of the claims, like you said, that have been made is that, you know, the same groups of people who are fighting to shrink reproductive rights and, you know, claiming that they're pro-life are also the same people who are making political decisions that keep migrant children in these inhumane yeah. conditions, right? The ones we're talking about. And a lot of activists, in, including myself, have changed the labeling and they're not calling these people pro-life because obviously these yeah. positions are not pro-life, but they started calling them, you know, anti-abortion, anti-choice. And my favorite, and I don't know if anyone uses this but me, is anti-reproductive justice. Because if you look at the whole of their positions, right, you know, denying yeah. the rights and the life of migrant children and denying the rights of, of bodily autonomy for women – they're just completely anti-reproductive justice. I mean, do you think that that labeling and that relabeling is fair? And it's actually actually kind of hostile. We were talking about like, you know, approaching this from a non-hostile place versus approaching it from a hostile place. I feel like relabeling it is kind of a hostile act. But do you think that's fair? I do think it's fair, actually, because it's, it's time to reframe the narrative. I feel like the pro-choice community, the reproductive justice community have forever been on the defense because the quote-unquote pro-life movement and lobby has been so powerful for so long and they've been so great at narrative and messaging. That's what Republicans do so well, um, which uh, you know I can't stand them for it, but kudos to them. They've done it really well. So, I think narrative and the words we use and the labels that we use are really important. And I think we're at a stage where you know, you don't get to call yourself pro-life if you're not advocating for the child at the border who happens to have brown skin and doesn't necessarily have American citizenship, but a life is a life, right? And if 
you're saying no because their parents brought them here against their will illegally or whatever. It's like, well, your whole argument just falls apart and you are not pro-life. You are anti-choice. And I even prefer anti-choice to anti-abortion because it kind of shows you the bigger picture. They're not just anti-abortion, the anti-choice in terms of whether you can use contraception or not or who you can marry and how you can get married and how how much rights you have based on your financial uh, status. You know, what do you have access to? So, yeah, I think the narrative is everything in this issue for sure. Also, one of the things you talk about when you talk about your activism is the fact that you started to look closely at the data. And one of the statistics you found was around women who were religious, right? And I think it's something like four in 10 women were churchgoers when they decided to have an abortion, right? And and another thing that you mentioned is that conservatives are really, really good at, at messaging. And I was just thinking about that and thinking about the fact that if you look at the numbers, if you look at the data, the messaging is much bigger than what the numbers actually bear out in terms of who's actually getting an abortion and who actually supports an abortion. Would you say that that's fair? Like they're they're really good at making it seem like there's far greater support for anti-choice than there actually is. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, there's so many different types of studies that I've done around general support for abortion versus support for Roe versus Wade versus support for abortion after a certain number of weeks. And so it's very easy for them to be like, well, the majority of Americans, 80% or whatever they say, <laughs> I don't follow their accounts, um, except when people retweet or screenshot them, uh, support, uh, there's a growing pro-life movement. Actually, that's incorrect. And I know this for a fact because a friend of mine who's a documentary filmmaker, this is just an example, she is making a documentary about the religious right movement and focusing on a few key figures. And initially, she was going to focus on the abortion issue and she had spoken to the president of the Students for Life organization. I believe it's called Students for Life. They go to campuses and they talk about you know their anti-abortion agenda. And this woman... First of all, my friend Kristen only spoke to this woman because she was trolling her Facebook page and she was like, well, you're making a documentary about abortion. Are you going to interview us? What about us? Is there room for us? And I'm thinking, make your own documentary, lady. (laughs) Anyway, my friend Kristen, the documentary filmmaker, being a very gracious person, said, hey, I'll have a conversation with you. And she shared about that conversation afterwards with me saying that, they're losing numbers and they know they're losing millennials. And so they're really trying to rebrand in a way that doesn't put people off because now they realize their messaging is very jarring to people. So I think that a lot of pro-choice and reproductive justice advocates should keep going in the way that they're calling out the hypocrisy and that they're being unapologetic about saying, well, this is not pro-life and you know, you don't get to care for this type of life and not about the other. And so they're not the majority. And the majority of people in this country, including Republicans, Republican women do support Roe versus Wade because really when you look at the alternative, it's we don't want to go back to what it was like before Roe versus Wade. So, you know, I think when this is why reporting is important, journalism is important and facts are important because it's easy just to believe rhetoric that's thrown around. 
Yeah. So speaking of Roe v. Wade, one of the Supreme Court cases that we talked about again offline that is really important but is often overlooked is Griswold versus Connecticut, right? Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that? So what is that? What was the decision and what's the impact of it? So there are a a bunch of really prominent advocates talking, especially now with these six-week abortion bans being introduced in states about how this isn't just about abortion. They ain't just coming for your abortion. They're also (laughs) coming for your birth control. And a lot of ex-evangelical know this deeply, deeply well, especially a lot of homeschool uh, former Christian students, because this is like the stuff that they were indoctrinated with in their textbooks and their, you know, with the religious curriculum that they were taught from. So Griswold v. Connecticut was a Supreme Court case that happened in 1965. And basically it ruled that married couples were allowed to use contraception without being sent to jail. So, in 1965, it was only allowed for married couples. But then in 1972, the year before Roe versus Wade, another case, Baird versus Eisenstadt, allowed birth control to be used for everyone. So, those two cases were really, really important. And now that a lot of the religious right and Republican legislators and the movement and the lobby movement have had a lot of success, frankly speaking, with abortion access, they're definitely coming for contraception. And especially when the Affordable Care Act passed, which was the biggest expansion of birth control that this country has ever seen with the individual mandate and the birth control expansion specifically, they were not happy with that. And we saw that in the Hobby Lobby case, which was 2015, I believe, 2015, 2016, where the Supreme Court, which was conservative majority at that time as well, basically ruled that a for-profit corporation, which happened to be owned by evangelical Christians, could claim religious freedom and not provide birth control for their employees through their insurance because the owners personally were against it. I'm like, in what kind of capacity does that make sense according to the constitution and, you know, these freedom of religion amendment, it just, it doesn't make sense to me, but it's something that a lot of people should be aware of that it's not just about abortion. And this is why I say we should be talking about choice and intersectionality when it comes to reproductive justice, because they ain't going to stop at abortion. It's about the right or the lack of right for someone to make decisions about their body with whom they want, when they want and how they want. Right. This seems like an overly simplistic um, comment to make about it. But, you you know, and you understand this word because, you know, being Australian, it just seems kind of daft to me. (laughs) It's kind of daft and short-sighted. Like, do they know what kind of hellscape they would create when women or people generally don't have bodily autonomy and there's no birth control? I mean, (laughs) have they thought this through? I mean... I would love to know the answer. I wish I had the answer. And first of all, I love that you use the word daft because that sounds so British. (laughs) It is daft. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And it it really is daft because, and this is where I'm like, hey, people, this is where we can find common ground. And I'm definitely not the only one saying this. There are so many people saying, okay, we get it. You don't like abortion, but hey, here, birth control, that reduces numbers, right? Right? And they're like, "Mm, yeah, we don't like that because that means you're having sex, you know, outside the boundaries of marriage. And then you start to realize, oh, this isn't about abortion. This is about my body. Oh, I get it now. I don't have an answer for why they think that way. And 
you know, I see statements from very big organizations and then I hear comments from individual people on that side of the aisle. And I just find that there's not a lot of consistency. And when you really break it down to specific issues, whether it's migrant children at the border or access to birth control, which reduces unintended pregnancies, there really isn't a lot of consistency. And so, but the only thing that is consistent is it's about bodily autonomy. So, yeah, it's just it's really frustrating because there are there are plenty of people out there who just don't want to compromise and don't really care. And also they're not willing to look at what's going to happen when you take away all these rights, you know. People say, "Oh yeah, handmaid's tale, blah blah blah." You don't really have to look at the handmaid's tale. What you have to do is look at what's happening in America now, like Alabama for instance, when they passed their total abortion ban, which hasn't gone into effect, by the way, and most likely won't. You know, people were like, oh, great job, Alabama, you did it. And one (laughs) conservative commentator tweeted, Alabama just became a sanctuary state for babies. And I'm like, but did it? (laughs) And then all all these other people, which I thought was great, a bunch of other people, reproductive justice advocates were tweeting, uh, actually, Alabama is number one in infant mortality rates, uh, ranks among the top in maternal mortality rates, lowest in education. I'm like, how do you call yourself a quote-unquote pro-life or sanctuary state for babies when what is just being allowed to be born the lowest bar that you can find? Because that's not life. That's just birth. And yeah, there's just so much around this issue that isn't, they just don't take into account. Like you don't get to say, oh, we've done everything for a child, but you're born. Sorry, you don't get healthcare. I mean, one of the theories that I heard, one of the theories that really stuck with me, it was a really early interview I did with someone um, named Laura Briggs. She wrote a book about reproductive justice. And I asked her the same question about, you know, why were these women voting against their own, own against their own rights, just generally. Yeah. Her theory was that they align themselves with conservatives or with the Republican Party knowingly giving up some of their rights, reproductive rights, because mm-hmm. the bigger picture of what the conservative party or what the GOP promises them is more valuable to them. Yeah. And that includes protection from, you know, scary people coming over the border, you know, scary crime. And so if they give up their reproductive rights, right, they will be guaranteed a level of protection as, you know, non-brown people, non-people of color yeah. from these other scary elements. And I thought that that was a pretty good theory. And there's actually probably a lot of stats and evidence to support that. Yeah, absolutely. And I often say that patriarchy would not survive if it were not for women supporting it. And I've seen it in the evangelical movement. We see it where, you know, these prominent evangelical men who, you know, either sexually abuse people or abuse their position of power are still supported by many, many women and it happens a lot because there are certain types of women in these communities and in these movements that benefit from patriarchy and it's like if all abortion becomes illegal in America tomorrow there will always be people including conservative women who will be able to get safe and legal abortion when they need it it's like abortion for me but not for thee and that's happening today I mean how many stories have we read about conservative politicians or pundits or pollsters or whoever it is who are publicly pro-life and anti-abortion and vote for this that and the other anti-abortion bill but then they were discovered to have a had a mistress and they're married but they have a mistress on the side, but they also tried to force them to get an 
an abortion, the ex-Missouri governor, Eric Greitens, that was exactly what happened to him. He was a pro-life dude and he even held a special legislative session to try and usher in all these anti-abortion bills. And then it turned out he was having an affair with a woman. He tried to blackmail her and tried to force her to get an abortion and all this awful, awful abusive stuff that he was doing. Thankfully, he's no longer the governor of Missouri. But it's like that stuff is always going to happen because those people in power, you know, in the patriarchal setting and especially coming from a religious background, they're always going to be able to access whatever it is that they need and want. take a moment to talk a bit about the Democratic primary. Big, big field. (laughs) (laughs) Understatement. It makes me laugh every time. So a really big field that's getting bigger every day. (laughs) They're reproducing. I'm just joking. That's that's a terrible joke. (laughs) Uh, Pun intended. Yeah. So who do you think is doing right by the reproductive justice movement who's in the race and who isn't? Who has given it, you know, full thought and has a really well thought out proposal, if you if you know of anyone? Yeah, there are a few standouts for me, specifically Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, Kirsten Gillibrand, Julian Castro, and Cory Booker. They've specifically and there are others who have, you know, given statements about reproductive rights and safe and legal abortion access, but those few specifically for me have come out and made some specific arguments about and policy proposals about how they're going to codify Roe versus Wade into federal policy. They're being full-throated about being against the Hyde Amendment, expanding healthcare access and Medicare and Medicaid access, and making sure that birth control is not attacked and that people have that bodily autonomy to be able to plan what they want to do with their bodies and with their families. So I think those few candidates are far above and beyond, you know, they're not just saying the bare minimum. They're not just like, oh, we condemn this statement. They're like, we condemn these shameful and regressive and antiquated laws that states like Missouri and Alabama and Georgia are passing. And here's what I'm going to do as president. As a candidate, this is how I feel. And then there are some who I I just don't think are quite there yet. And I don't want to be just a one issue, you know, a voter because a lot of issues I'm passionate about, but specifically on this, because reproductive justice is absolutely intertwined with economic justice, with racial justice, with all of these other issues. It's, It's immigration rights as well. Um, I feel like Bernie Sanders hasn't been on the forefront as I would have liked him to be. And I know that a lot of his really, really passionate supporters are like, no, he's pro-choice. His record speaks for itself. And I'm like, yes, I understand that. But also the landscape has changed drastically since even 2016. I don't think Joe Biden is really where it's at when it comes to this. You know, people say, oh, he's evolved. He's personally pro-life. His record speaks for itself, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I'm sorry, he's just not on par with where I feel the majority of progressive and reproductive rights-minded people are at right now because they don't just want someone to hold the line. They want someone to fight forward, you know, to use that phrase again. They want someone to be like, 
okay, so what else are you going to do? And enough pandering to the people who have been able to hold power on this issue for so long. You know, that the only way you're going to unseat those people is to do something different. So I really like that Elizabeth Warren and Kirsten Gillibrand, who just spoke at the Planned Parenthood Forum, a number of these candidates did. They were unapologetic about their stance, and that's what we need to see more of from these candidates. Like, stop trying to feel like, oh, I've got to appeal to the Trump base and the GOP base and this base and that base. It's like, no, fight for your values, and the the right people will vote for you, and that's that's what matters more than anything. You know, that does not surprise me. I could have guessed that those four candidates, Warren, um, Castro, Gillibrand, and Harris, because, you know, they've, they've actually fleshed out a lot of their policies in detail. And so it doesn't yep. surprise me that they have the strongest positions on reproductive justice. And yeah, here's the thing that I think a lot of people are missing. I mean, we could go on, we could probably have an entire episode on Biden's yeah. positions. But, you uh. know, I mean... <laughs> I, I don't know if we need to do that, but <laughs> but here's the he's thing. had enough airtime. He's had enough. Good goodness, he's the front runner. Um, but you know, here's the thing that people are missing, and I think that this is the same with criminal justice reform. It's the same with um, you know a lot of other issues that are kind of really top issues. You know, voting rights. Women are not stupid. Right. We know when someone is pandering and they they put it on their list of things like, yeah, I'm for reproductive justice or yeah, I'm for, you know, I'm pro-choice. And we know when they're just saying it and when they mean it and when they understand it. And, you know, candidates, it's, you know, they need to understand this and they need to flesh out policies and plans that align with that instead of just, you know, saying like, yeah, sure, this is a box I'm going to check off. We're not stupid. We know when you're checking off a box. Yeah, exactly. And if if they can't make the connection or if they're unwilling to make the connection because they think, I'm just going to phone this in, I'm going to coast along on my Uncle Joe popularity, (laughs) then it's just like, well, you know, there there was this one discussion I I had seen and I'd retweeted it a few times. All the people, all the states that want to put women in jail or people in jail for having an abortion, guess what people in jail can't do? Vote. You think that's not connected? Of course it is. Like, that's a voting rights issue. So then it's like, if, if they're not talking about voting rights, criminal justice reform and immigration reform and, you know, all these issues related to reproductive justice, you don't fully understand why we're so angry and we're so loud and we're going to be unrelenting in our desire to push these candidates to make a stance on this once and for all. And so, yeah, I don't think you start equivocating. We know exactly where you are. We're not, we're not stupid, like you said. So one of the things I wanted to say about these candidates, we've got what, 25 or 26 candidates. Yes. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Maybe 50 as of tomorrow. I don't know. But I just, I just want to say, and I want to be clear about this is that thinking through all of them and some of them are are on the margins for me, all of them would be better than Trump, right? You know, if we could just flip a switch and say, okay, you're the president now, I think every single person who's running would be better than Trump. Right. But here's the thing. And I and I tweeted this on social. I tweeted this, uh, you know, a couple months ago is that right now we're in the primary phase. We have a choice. We can vote for someone who isn't Trump and we can move forward from where we started, you know, or we have a choice of just voting him out. We have a choice of voting him out and then moving forward on a lot of these issues. And that's the choice that we have right now. Yeah, I agree. And one of the things that I, I didn't really like about Joe Biden's campaign video when he announced was that it was all just being against Trump. It's like, that's great. Everyone on the side is against Trump. What are you for? What are you going to fight for? That's what people want to see because, okay, Trump gets out of office, the GOP lose power, then what? You know, it's like, then you've got to do the work that you were elected to do. And so, 
if you're not doing a both and, if you can't like walk and chew gum at the same time, like be against Trump and, you know, flesh out your policies and, you know, appeal to more and more people, especially unregistered voters, which, you know, let's go after them instead of Trump voters. If you're not doing that, then I feel like your heart's not in it. And also there are a couple of candidates where I'm like, you should be running for the Senate. You know, we need the Senate. Like, why isn't Beto O'Rourke? He's not doing that well in the polls, but he had so much momentum and so much popularity when he was running against Ted Cruz that he could run again and win. And it's like, I, I don't know, that just things like that irk me. It's like, that's just my personal opinion. I know a lot of people share it. So, well, I want to talk about your documentary, right? So just tell me about how that came about. You have a, is it a single documentary or is it a series? When does it air? How did you decide to do it? Yeah. So the, it's a documentary series and it came about, I've kind of been ruminating on it for the past few years, especially leaving the church and thinking more deeply about abortion and reproductive rights and deciding that I need to use my 16 plus years of media experience in Australia and the US and put it to something good that I'm passionate about. And right now this is my issue. And so I have been uh, doing preliminary interviews and I'm in the stage where I'm pitching it to networks and production companies here in Hollywood. And it's kind of been tweaked over the last year or so, just based on what's been happening politically and also on feedback that I've been getting. And there is a lot of enthusiasm for it. It's a shame because like there are some networks and production companies that will say, this is so important. But it's a bit too, you know, risque for us. And I'm like, but literally everyone in America has an opinion about abortion. You know that people are going to watch it. So the the series is called Life at All Costs, Going Beyond Pro-Choice Versus Pro-Life. And it's kind of starting off with my story as a journalist and as a former evangelical, kind of sharing where I've come from and why I'm passionate about this issue and going on a journey to meet people uh, of all different stripes. I don't like to say from both sides of the aisle because my point is, you know, to kind of forge new ground in this conversation, but meeting all different people and talking about issues like America's high rates of maternal mortality, incarcerated pregnant women and how they're treated and the foster care system and healthcare and birth control access. And I don't just want to look at it in the US. I kind of want to use the US as the first episode as a jumping off point, but I want to look at what's happening around the world too. Ireland just legalized abortion last year. South Korea has just legalized it. There are efforts to clamp down on abortion rights in parts of Latin America. And for me, it's like trying to, you know, really look at personal stories and lives of everyday women and people that are affected while also looking at the impact of politics and religion and asking the question like, does restricting abortion actually reduce it? And why do countries with such low abortion rates have such liberal abortion laws? And how does that work? And what other policies do they have in place? You know, like paid leave and maternity leave and all of that. So that's amazing. Well, I'm sold. I am in support. And let Thank us know you. how we can how we can support you. Well, if you're listening and you run a network and you run development <laughs> or you green light shows and you like this idea, hit me up. <laughs> Well, Ashadaya, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for your activism and for your work around this. It's really valuable. And I hope to talk to you again someday under better circumstances. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much, Jen. And I really appreciate you having this conversation. And yeah, here's hoping the next one will be like, we're celebrating everything. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Thank you so much for listening. If you are enjoying the electorate, please, please do us a favor. Please leave a review on iTunes. It helps us grow so much. It's so easy. And if you're listening right now, you're probably halfway there. 
Just click the ratings and review tab in iTunes, write something nice about us and select a rating, preferably five stars and hit submit. And voila, you've just helped other people who are passionate about voting rights, civil rights, reproductive rights. You've helped them all find this podcast. And thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep up the good fight.